the man who was equal with God. The Gospel of John, chapter 5. Our Lord's first two miracles recorded by John were somewhat private in nature. The servants and the disciples knew that he transformed the water into wine, and the servants and the nobleman's family knew that he had healed the sick son. The miracle recorded in John 5 was not only public, but it was performed on the Sabbath day and incited the opposition of the religious leaders. We see here the beginning of, quote, official persecution against the Savior. There are three exciting arts, or excuse me, acts in this drama. The, the cure in verses 1 through 15, when you visit St. Anne's Church in Jerusalem, they will show you the deep excavation that has revealed the ancient pool of Beth- Bethesda. The Hebrew name Bethesda has been spelled various ways and given different meanings. Some say it means house of mercy or house of grace, but others say it means place of the two outpourings. There's historical and archaeological evidence, excuse me, that two ages... Two pools of water served this area in ancient times. The pool is situated near the northeast corner of the old city, close to the Sheep Gate in Nehemiah 3 and 1. Also chapters 12, verse 39. Perhaps John saw some spiritual significance to this location, for he had already told his readers that Jesus Christ is, quote, the Lamb of God, John 1, verse 29. We had not known which feast Jesus was observing when he went to Jerusalem, and it is not important that we know His main purpose for going was not to maintain a religious tradition, but to heal a man and use the miracle as a basis for a message to the people. The miracle illustrated what he said in John 5, verse 24, the power of his word and the gift of life. While it is true that some manuscripts omit the end of John 5, verse 3, and all of verse 4, it is also true that the event and the man's words in John 5, 7 would make a little, uh, make little sense if these words are eliminated. So why would anybody, especially a man sick for so many years, remain in one place if nothing special were occurring? You would think that after 38 years of nothing happening to anybody, The man would go elsewhere and stop hoping. It seems wisest for us to accept the fact that something extraordinary kept all these handicapped people at this pool, hoping for a cure. John described these people as impotent, blind, lame, paralyzed. What what havoc sin has wrought in this world, but the but the healing of these infirmities was one of the prophesied ministries of the Messiah in Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6. Had the religious leaders known their own scriptures, they would have recognized their Redeemer. 
but they were spiritually blind. No matter how you look at this miracle, it is an illustration of the grace of God. It was grace that brought Jesus to the pool of Bethesda. For who would want to mingle with a crowd of helpless people? Note that Jesus did not heal all of them. He singled out one man and healed him. And the fact that Jesus came to the man, spoke to him, healed him, and then met him later in the temple is proof of his wonderful grace and his wonderful mercy. John noted that the man had been ill for 38 years. Maybe he saw in this a picture of his own Jewish nation that had wandered in the wilderness for 38 years, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Spiritually speaking, Israel was a nation of impotent people waiting hopelessly for something to happen. Jesus knew about the man. See John verse, John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And asked him if he wanted to be healed. He would think, you would think that the man would have responded with an enthusiastic, yes, I want to be healed. But instead he began to give excuses. He had been in that sad condition for so long that his will was as paralyzed as his body. But if you compare John 5, verse 6 with verse 40, you will see that Jesus had a spiritual lesson in mind as well. This man did illustrate the tragic spiritual state of the nation. The Lord healed him through the power of his spoken word. He commanded the man to do the very thing he was unable to do, but in his command was the power of fulfillment. The cure was immediate, and certainly some of of the many people at the pool must have witnessed it. Jesus did not pause to heal any anyone else. Instead, he moved away. Actually, see John 5, verse 13, so as not to create a problem. So the miracle would have caused no problem except that it occurred on the Sabbath day. Our Lord certainly could have done could have come a day earlier or even waited a day but he wanted to get the attention of the religious leaders at that moment right there later he would deliberately heal a blind man on the sabbath day in john 9 verses 1 through 14 the scribes had listed uh 30 39, actually, 39 tasks that were prohibited on the Sabbath, and carrying a burden was one of them. So instead of rejoicing at the wonderful deliverance of the man, the religious leaders condemned him for carrying his bag and thereby breaking the law. Let me reinforce that thought. It was the religious leaders that condemned him for carrying his bed and breaking the law. It's not easy to understand the relationship between this man and Jesus. There's no evidence that he believed on Christ and was converted, yet he cannot say that 
we cannot say that he was opposed to the Savior. In fact, he did not even know who it was that healed him until Jesus met him later on in the temple. No doubt the man went there to give thanks to God and offer the appropriate sacrifices. It seems strange in a way that the man did not actively seek a closer relationship with the one who healed him, but more than one person has gratefully accepted the gift and ignored the giver. Did the did the man inform on Jesus um, healing him because of fear? We don't know. The Jewish leaders at least turned from him and aimed their accusations at Jesus Christ. And unlike the healed or yeah, unlike the healed blind man in John 9, this man was not excommunicated. The Lord's words, as we see in John 5.14, suggest that the man's physical plight had been the result of sin. But Jesus did not say that the man's sins had been forgiven, as he did in dealing with the sick man lowered through the roof in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It is possible to experience an exciting miracle and still not be be saved and still not go to heaven. In verses 16 through 18, the Jewish leaders did not prosecute the man who was healed, even though he had broken the law, but they did begin to persecute the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the guardians of the faith, the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the, the religious ruling council, they had had the responsibility of investigating new preachers and teachers who appeared in the land, you know, lest some false prophet come along and lead the people astray. So they had looked into the ministry of John the Baptist and more recently had been scrutinizing the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had healed the demoniac on the Sabbath day in Luke Chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. So the Sanhedrin was already suspicious. Now, in the days following the miracle recorded in John 5, Jesus would defend his disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath day. And he would heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. See Matthew 12, 9 through 14. He deliberately challenged the legalistic traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had taken the Sabbath, which was God's gift to man, and had transformed it into a prison house of regulations and restrictions. And when they confronted Jesus with his unlawful conduct, he simply replied that he was doing only what his father was doing. God's Sabbath rest had been broken by man's sin. See Genesis 3. And ever since the fall of man, God has been seeking lost sinners and saving them. But when Jesus said, quote, My Father, instead of the uh, usual Our Father used by the Jews, He claimed to be equal with God. The Jewish leaders instantly understood His claim 
and they changed their accusation from that of Sabbath-breaking to blasphemy because Jesus claimed to be God. Liberal theologians who say that Jesus never claimed to be God have a difficult time with this uh, scripture. Of course, the, the penalty of such blasphemy was death. So it is here that the official persecution of Jesus began, culminating in his crucifixion. In the, in the days that followed, our Lord often confronted his enemies with their evil desire to kill him. See John chapter 7, John uh, chapter 25. No, excuse me. See John chapter 7, John chapter 8. They hated him without a cause, John chapter 15. They ignored the good deeds that he performed for the helpless and the hopeless and centered their attention on destroying him. Jesus made himself equal with God because he is God. This is the theme of John's gospel. The Jewish leaders could not uh, disprove his claims, so they tried to destroy him and get him out of the way, both in his crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus openly affirmed his deity and turned his enemies' weapons against them. The British writer George MacDonald pointed out that John 5.17 gives us a profound insight into our Lord's miracles. Jesus did instantly what the Father is always doing slowly. For example, in nature, as mentioned earlier, the Father is slowly turning water into wine. But Jesus did it instantly. Through the powers in nature, the Father is healing broken bodies, but Jesus healed them immediately. Nature is repeatedly multiplying bread from sowing to harvest, but Jesus multiplied it instantly in his own hands. And then in verses 19 through 47, in response to their accusations, Jesus made three significant claims that proved his sonship. He claimed to be equal with God. Instead of denying their accusations, he endorsed it. If today a man made this kind of a claim, we would conclude that he was joking or mentally disturbed. Jesus was certainly not insane, and there is every evidence that he was deadly serious when he spoke these words. Either he is what he claims to be, or he is a liar. And if he is a liar, how do you explain all the good he has done in the lives of needy people? Nobody wants to trust a liar. Jesus' disciples were willing to die for him. Jesus claimed to be one with his Father in his works. So if healing a man on the Sabbath day was a sin, then the Father was to blame. Jesus did nothing. But only that which the Father was doing. The Father and the Son, they worked together, doing the same deeds in the same way. I and the Father are one, Jesus said in John 10.30. When our Lord came to earth as man, he submitted himself to the Father in everything. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Hebrews 10, verse 9. 
He veiled his glory and laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. In the wilderness, Satan tempted him to use his divine powers for himself, but he refused to act independently. He was totally dependent on the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Not only did the Father show the Son his works and enable him to do them, but the Father also shared his love. See John verse 20, John 5 verse 20. The first three Gospels open with Father calling Jesus my beloved Son. Quote, my beloved Son. And John echoed this statement in John 3.35. We usually think of the Father's love for the lost world as in John 3.16. But we must also remember the Father's love for his dear Son because the Father loves the Son. The Father shows him his works. The blind religious leaders could not see what Jesus was doing because they did not know the Father or the Son. In fact, even greater works were in the Father's plan, works that would cause them to marvel. Perhaps he had in mind the healing of Lazarus. For in John chapter 5, verse 21, he mentioned the raising of the dead. For Jesus to claim to have power to raise the dead was a blasphemous thing in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. They gave that power to God alone. They said that Jehovah held the three great keys. Excuse me, the three great keys. The key to open the heavens and give rain. The key to open the womb and give conception. And the key to open the grave and raise the dead. As far as the gospel records, Jesus had not yet raised anyone from the dead. So to make this claim was to invite even more opposition. In John 5.21 certainly can mean much more than the physical raising of people from the dead, for certainly Jesus was referring to his gift of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. He amplified this truth further as recorded in John 5:24 through 29. So Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father in his works, but he also claimed to be equal with the Father in executing judgment. John 5:22. To the orthodox Jew, Jehovah God was the judge of all the earth. See Genesis 18, verse 25. And no one dared to apply that title to himself. But Jesus did. By claiming to be the judge, he claimed to be God. In Acts, as we look at Acts 17, 31, it says, Because he, God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. So our Lord claimed equality in another area, namely equal honor with the Father in verse 23. The fact that he is the appointed judge should cause men to honor him. 
What a tremendous claim. If you do not honor the Son, you are not honoring the Father. Let me say that again. If you do not honor the Son, you are not honoring the Father. The religious people who say that they worship God but who deny the deity of Christ have neither the Father nor the Son. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot know the Father, worship the Father, or serve the Father. He claimed to have authority to raise the dead in verses 24 through 29. For a second time, Jesus introduced his words with a solemn, verily, verily. See John 5, 19 and verses 24 and 25. More than 20 times in John's gospel, you'll find Jesus using this solemn form of address. It is as though he was saying, pay attention to this. What I am about to say is important. So in this fascinating paragraph, Jesus spoke about four different resurrections. He described the resurrection of lost sinners into eternal life. The lost sinner is a, a lifeless and helpless as a corpse. No matter how an undertaker may prepare a corpse, it is still dead. And no corpse is deader than any other corpse. So you, if you are dead, you are dead. The lost sinner is helpless to save himself. And he certainly cannot give himself life. How are dead sinners raised from the dead? By hearing God's word and believing on God's son. Jesus healed the paralyzed man at the pool by his word. John 5, 8. Each time he raised somebody from the dead, he spoke the word. See Luke 7, 11 through 17, Luke 8, 49 through 56, John 11, 41 through 44. His word is, quote, living and powerful. See Hebrews 4, 12. And can raise sinners from spiritual death. Everlasting life means that that they can never die spiritually again, nor can they ever come into judgment, Romans 8 and 1. To hear his word and believe means salvation. To reject his word means condemnation. See John 12, verse 48. The second resurrection mentioned is the resurrection of our Lord himself. See John 5, verse 26. Our life is derived, but his life is original in himself. In him was life. Let me quote. In him was life. John 1, verse 4. The grave could not hold him because he is, quote, the prince of life. Acts 2.24, Acts 3.15. James laid down his life and then he took it up again. John 10.17 and 18. Because he has life in himself, he can share that life with all who will trust him. The third resurrection named is the is the future resurrection of life when believers are raised from the dead. 
John 5, verses 28 and 29. This wonderful truth is explained in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15. Keep in mind that resurrection is not reconstruction. Keep in mind that resurrection is not reconstruction. It does not imply that God puts the pieces back together again. The resurrection body is a new body. It's a glorified body suited to the new heavenly environment. Death is not the end for the believer, nor will he live in heaven as a disembodied spirit. God saves the whole person, and this includes the body. See Romans 8.23 and Philippians 3.20 and verse 21. This resurrection of life will take place when Jesus Christ returns in the air and calls his people to himself. The fourth resurrection he mentioned is the resurrection of condemnation. John chapter 5 verses 29b. This resurrection involves only the lost and it will take place just before Jesus Christ ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelations 20, verses 11 through 15. What an awesome event that will be when the dead, quote, both small and great, stand before Jesus Christ. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son, John 5, 22, and has given him the authority to execute judgment, verse 27. Today Jesus Christ is the Savior, but one day he shall sit as the judge. The title, quote, Son of Man, used in John 5, 27, refers to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, and is a definite messianic title. It is used 12 times in John's Gospel, and it is used over 80 times in all four Gospels. The Jews would know this title for the reading of the book of Daniel, and they would know also that by using it, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah and the judge. Believers will be given resurrection bodies so that they might reign with Christ in glory. Unbelievers will be given resurrection bodies, but not glorified bodies. That they might be judged and then suffer punishment in those bodies. Bodies that were used for sin will suffer the consequences of that sin. The fact that Jesus has the authority to raise the dead is proof that he is equal with the Father, and therefore he is God. He claimed that there are valid witnesses who support his claim to deity. Verses 30 through 47. The word witness is a key word in John's gospel. That word is used 47 times. Jesus did bear witness to himself, but he knew they would not accept it. So he called in three other witnesses. The first was John the Baptist in John 5 verses 30 through 35, whom the religious leaders had interrogated carefully. In fact, at the very end of his ministry, our Lord, our Lord 
appointed the rulers back to the witness of John the Baptist. See Matthew 21, 23 through 27. John knew who Jesus was and faithfully declared that he knew to the people of Israel or what he knew to the people of Israel. John told Paul, uh, John told the people that Jesus was the Lord. See John 1, 23. The Lamb of God, John 1, 29, and also verse 36 of John 1. And the Son of God in John 1, 34. John was a, quote, burning and shining lamp. Jesus is the light, John 8, verse 12. And the Jewish people were excited about his ministry. However, their enthusiasm cooled off, and nobody lifted a finger to try to deliver John when he was arrested by Herod. The leaders looked on a the leaders looked on John as a local celebrity. See Matthew 11:7 through 8. But they did not want to receive his message of repentance. The publicans and sinners accepted John's message and were converted, but the religious leaders refused to submit. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. Whenever God raises up a spiritual leader who commands attention, there's always the danger of attracting people who want to bask in its popularity, but not submit to his authority. A, quote, mixed multitude followed Moses and Israel out of Egypt, people who were impressed with the miracles but not yielded to the Lord. The prophets and apostles, as well as the great leaders in church history, all had to put up with shallow people who followed the crowd but refused to obey the truth. We have them in churches today. Our Lord's second witness was the witness of his Excuse me. Our Lord's second witness was the witness of his miracles. See John 5:36. And you will remember that John selected seven of these signs to include in his gospel as proof that Jesus is the Son of God. See John 20, verse 30 through 31. Jesus made it clear that his works were the works of the Father. John 5, 17 through 20 and 14, verse 10. Even Nicodemus had to admit that our Lord's miracles identified him as, quote, sent from God, John 3, verse 2. But the Bible also records miracles performed by ordinary men such as Moses, Elijah, and Paul. Do these miracles prove that they are all sent of God? Yes, they do. See Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. But none of these men ever claimed to be the very Son of God. No servant of God able to perform God's mighty works would ever claim to be God himself. The fact that Jesus made this claim backed up by his 
mighty works and perfect life is evidence that his claim is true. Jesus indicated that the Father gave him a specific ministry to finish while he was here on earth. It said in John 17, verse 4, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Or Jesus said that in John 17, 4. He was not only a divine timetable, but he followed a divine agenda. He had specific works to accomplish in the Father's will. Since the Old Testament law required the testimony of two or three witnesses, as it says in Numbers 35 and 30 and Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, the Lord met that requirement by giving three trustworthy witnesses. The third and final witness our Lord summoned was the word of the Father in John 5, verses 37 through 47. The Jewish people highly revered the written word of God particularly the law that was given through Moses. Moses heard God's voice and saw God's glory. But we have that same voice and glory in the inspired word of God. See 2 Peter 1, 12 through 21. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ, yet the people who received and pursued and preserved that word were blind to their own Messiah. And some might say, why? For one thing, they did not permit that word to generate faith in their hearts. See John 5.38. And then John 5.39 is probably a statement of fact and not a command and could be rendered saying, Ye search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. The Jewish scribes sought to know the word of God, but they did not know the God of the word. They counted the very letters of the text, but they missed the spiritual truth that the text contained. Because of my radio ministry, I often receive letters from people who disagree with my interpretations and and even or applications of scripture. And sometimes these letters are quite angry. It's unfortunate when our study of the Bible makes us arrogant and militant instead of humble and anxious to serve others. Even those who disagree with us, the mark of true Bible study is not knowledge that puffs up, but it's love that builds up. See 1 Corinthians 8.1. So there was something wrong with the minds of these Jewish leaders. They did not see Christ in their own scriptures. See 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14 through 18. And also 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. But there was also something wrong with their wills. They would not trust in the Savior because they did not have the word in their hearts. They did not want Christ in their hearts. They were religious and self-righteous, but they were not saved. These leaders had a third problem, and this was the lack of love in their hearts. 
In John 5, verse 42, it says, Ye have not the love of God in you. This means the experience of God's love for them, as well as their expression of love for God. They claim to love God, but their attitude toward Jesus Christ proved that their love was counterfeit. Their attitude toward God's word hindered their faith, but so also did their attitude toward themselves and one another. The Pharisees enjoyed being honored by men. See Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. And they did not seek for the honor that comes from God alone. They did not honor the Son. See John 5, 23. Because he did not honor them. Because they rejected the true Son of God who came in the Father's name. They would one day accept a false Messiah, the Antichrist, who would come in his own name. See John 5.43, see 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and see Revelations chapter, 20, or chapter 13. Excuse me. If we reject that which is true, we will ultimately receive that which is false. Our Lord closed this penetrating sermon by warning the Jewish leaders that Moses, whom they honored, would be their judge, not their savior. The very scriptures that they used to defend their religion would one day bear witness against them. The Jews knew that Moses wrote. The Jews knew exactly what Moses wrote, but they did not really believe what he wrote. So it's one thing to have the word in our hands or our heads, but quite another thing to have it in our hearts. So Jesus is the word made flesh, John 1.14, and the written word bears witness to the incarnate word. Luke 24 verse 17 says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The witness of John the Baptist, of John the Baptist, the witness of the divine miracles, and the witness of the word of God all unite to declare that Jesus Christ is indeed one with the Father and the very Son of God. Our Lord was not intimidated by the accusations of the religious leaders in any way. If you check a harmony of the Gospels, you will see that after the events recorded in John 5, Jesus deliberately violated the Sabbath again. He permitted his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, and he healed a man with a withered hand. See Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. These events probably took place in Galilee, but the news would certainly reach the leaders in Jerusalem and Judea. The healing of the man on the Sabbath would come up again in John 7. The leaders would persist in protecting tradition instead of understanding the truth. But before we judge them, and I'll close here, Perhaps we ought to examine our own lives and our own churches. Are we permitting religious tradition to blind us to the truth of God's word?
Are we so involved in Bible study that we fail to see Jesus Christ in the Word? Does our knowledge of the Bible give us a big head, or does it give us a burning heart? And with those thoughts, I will leave you to think about, to ponder on, and to examine for yourself. In Jesus' name.